continue looking at the aspect of the nature of love. And here we notice Paul actually makes a transition from some of the more negative signs of what love should not be to a positive transition of what it should be. As we look to the reading of God's word, though, if you please join me in prayer. Father, you know that we are dull of heart, prone to sin, prone to carelessness. And so we ask that you to open our eyes to the truths of your gospel. Unplug our ears that we might hear your word. Father, that it would please you to transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it would nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. And we pray and ask this through Jesus Christ, who is the bread of heaven. Amen. Beginning in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. There's a German word that finds its way into English and articles and talks. Some of you have heard it. It's a very common word for German and other Northern European languages as well. And again, you, many of you have heard it. it uh, put it in your boat. You can see that. It's schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. What we have to do with a whole sentence to describe, they capture in just one word. It's the delight we get when something bad happens to someone else. Literally, it means harm, joy. Now, comedy uses this all the time. If you have ever watched the film Home Alone, it is a long, extended schadenfreude. We laugh as some very awful things happen to two inept robbers by a little, sadistic eight-year-old boy. <laughs> Slipping on ice, the blowtorch to the head, swinging paint can to the face, and on it goes. And we're used to humor like that. And again, that's why we call it slapstick. We laugh at those things. But the idea is much deeper than just simply comedy. It includes that inner smirk when we have, uh, see, a, a famous person get theirs. And we have an inner delight in seeing them taken down a notch. Or seeing that out-of-state New four-wheel drive stuck in the ditch as you drive by. There's an inner gloating that can take place, even as you might say to yourself, go home. That's, that's another level. But it goes farther. Now, something really terrible happens to a politician or their family, and Twitter lights up with glee. Retweets, Facebook forwards, Hearts, likes, smiley face emojis, LOL, RFL, all of these things. 
or delighting in someone's demise. And instinctively we know that followers of Jesus cannot do this. That as we progress down this joy in someone else's harm, it shifts from a comedy to a hardness of heart. We do not rejoice in the suffering of others, nor are we in any act of unrighteousness or injustice. Never should unrighteousness and justice gladden our heart in any way. We are called to rejoice in the truth, in goodness. And there is a freedom that we receive in Jesus that genuinely allows us to love goodness for other people. In this, we also then choose not to be put off by differences we might have with them. Because our joy flows from the Father having reconciled us to himself through his Son. We are free from being defensive. We are free to love. The Corinthians were getting it all mixed up, though. They were rejoicing when they should have been weeping. And they were celebrating not in the good blessings of others that were right in front of them. They were celebrating the wrong things. Now, from the outside, there was a lot happening in the church at Corinth that must have looked really good. Theirs was a thriving church community. It was filled and flowing with spiritual gifts that were truly amazing. They could name drop great apostles who had come through their doors and administered in their church. People were coming to faith in Christ. They had growing influence in a very important city. But underneath these successes was a church in peril. The very freedom that they had received from the gospel was being used to destroy the faith of others. And Paul, he brings them back to the very heart of God's love to redirect this freedom. So that they would understand that they had been freed from defensiveness and gloating. Back in chapter 9, Paul had said, am I not free? Then he went on to say, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I become a Jew in order to win Jews. To those outside the law of Moses, I became as one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save them. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul is looking at how he can share in the blessings of other people coming to faith in Christ. That people who are far off would be brought near. That he was willing to submit himself to their good in this way. And that is how Paul uses his freedom. This is an others-centered heart of love. Love that looks to the interest of someone else. And Paul later in chapter 10, he said, you say, I have the right to do anything. But not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything. But not everything is constructive. See, what drives the bus on our rights? It's the good of others, the love for neighbor. Following Jesus means that you are free and bound at the same time. In Christ, I am free from the bondage of my sin. And now I can truly bind myself to others in love. 
Paul tells us, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And in his letter, Paul has pointed out a man sleeping with his father's wife, and they were boasting about it. There were civil lawsuits with believers, sexual immorality, stumbling weaker believers over food offered to idols, factions, divisions. All of these were wrongdoing. They were unrighteous behaviors. Being smug about their new freedom in Christ was keeping them from seeing that this was not freedom at all. We cannot rejoice in wrongdoing, nor can we celebrate the misfortune of others. Both are out of bounds for us. Does anyone think for a moment that Jesus and the disciples would have high-fived one another and gloated if they had heard that the high priest's niece had died of an illness? Or of a particular prominent Pharisee who had come against him, his son was killed in an accident? No, not even. No hesitation. And with that, we also see that a love for the truth not only frees us from rejoicing in someone else's downfall, it frees us from our own defensiveness with others. Now, this idea is not right on the surface in what Paul is saying, but it's a clear implication. New Testament scholar Anthony Thistleton, he notes that love that can rejoice is honest and open and not defensive because it places the good of others above the good of self. Because it places the good of others above the good of self, it's not defensive. And taking this further, Catholic theologian Karl Rahner, he reminds us that when we have placed everything in the hands of God, There is no need to hide from or fear the truth. Why? Because the Lord already knows it. And he has already accepted us knowing who we are. So rather than a defensiveness with people who might disagree with us or a gloating over their demise, love frees us to rejoice and to celebrate. Paul goes on to the second half. He says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Delighting in the truth, it keeps us from being afraid of dissent. We can rejoice in goodness and rightness wherever it is found. For all of it, if it is true and good, it comes from the one source. It has to come from God if it is truly good and true. So love can rejoice in the truth that benefits somebody else. Love can rejoice in the truth that benefits somebody else. And what keeps this from happening is our self-centered pride. And all of this will keep us from real joy and celebration, from gladness. For these cannot exist in a small heart. That great theologian, Dr. Seuss, He captured this idea really well with the Grinch. The Grinch was sour and joyless. He could only muster a sneer at the misfortune he caused other people. But that's not real joy. What changed him? What changed him to then to celebrate and to have joy? Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch, small heart, grew three sizes that day. 
a heart transformation is what's needed. And that heart transformation only comes through our creator. A recreation of the heart, a regeneration of the life of the soul only through Jesus. And that will then give us a bigger heart. And this new heart, this new love is always connected to the truth because it flows from being connected to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Love is a truth claim. It never calls a wrong right. Real love does not rejoice in falsehood in order not to offend. But it also tries not to offend while it rejoices in the truth. From Thistleton again in your bulletin, love never relishes the opportunity to say, I told you so. See that attitude to say, I told you so. And a personal delight in that? That's not love. And with that, that tells us that we don't have to convince anyone of what is true. I don't have to make anyone believe what I do because I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't make a new heart in someone. I can't present the truth so that they see it and open their eyes. I can present the truth, but I'm not the one who opens their eyes. And so I'm free in how I relate to them because I am not the one responsible for their faith. A defensive posture flows from insecurity. A defensive posture, it flows from pride. Now, let's talk conspiracy theories for a moment. No doubt they have been around from the beginning of time, of fallen man. And I'm sure some of them are actually true. But we live in a time where our communication technology can breed them flawlessly in the petri dishes by the thousands. They're everywhere. And the more outlandish the claim, the more rabid will be those who follow it. Why? What do conspiracy theories do for those who hold them? Their claims of truth, right? Real truth. Who knows this truth? Only those who are part of the inner circle of truth tellers. And this flows from insecurity and pride. I feel uncertain or even scared of what's happening around me. So I doggedly hold on to some outlandish tale to bolster my own courage. And then that allows me also then to look down on and even insult those other sheeple for their misguided beliefs. Whether it's flat earth or denial of a tragic shooting, what is evident is not a joy and love for others, but anger, resentment, and pride. And we've seen how this has played out all the time around us. How devastating it is. Now, take that into another arena, which is easier for us to see. We've also seen what happens when maybe uh, a journalist or a cartoon drawer makes fun of the Prophet Muhammad in any way. Death threats, Murder all in the name of defending 
the prophet in Islam. We see that and we shudder. Lots of names and labels get used. Certainly it is not right. And yet, and yet how easy it is for us to miss the same mentality in our own backyard. Wearing the wrong political t-shirt or hat has gotten some people killed or seriously harmed in our country where we boast of freedom and democracy. What I see in here is the same type of person just wearing a different colored t-shirt. Different color of politics or religion. Oh, no, no, you don't understand. Mine's a totally different color than theirs. Yep, different color. Got it. But you sound the same. You're the same kind of person. And this is fallen human nature at work. It's always way easier to see it in other places and culture than in our own. But it's no less present here. You see, the true prophet, the God-man, he said this. He said, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own? You hypocrite. First take out the log in your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, love rejoices in the truth. It doesn't try to rub somebody's nose in it. So to combat this inner defensiveness, we have to cultivate, as it were, a loose hand on our ideas, an ability to laugh at ourselves, to not take ourselves so seriously. Are you saying the truth doesn't matter? I'm saying that if the truth matters, That kind of attitude is a terrible setting for letting it shine forth in its radiant glory. Proverbs tells us, 11.22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. The good news of Jesus is a priceless pearl. It's a flawless gem. Our lives are to adorn it in our speech and in our attitude. And when it doesn't, We make the gold ring of the gospel in a pig's snout. And of course, someone can rightly say, well, what about injustice? What about wrongdoing? What about righteous anger? So straight from last week, a good diagnostic for righteous anger. Do you get provoked for the cause of others or is it just about you? Can you let wrongs, injustices done to you roll off your back like water on a duck, but stand up for the rights of somebody else? If you're in the habit of combining the word righteous with your anger, be very suspicious of your own heart. I said last week, if you're a straight shooter who just tells it like it is, you very likely are just a shooter. Now, my prophet and savior, your prophet and savior, he didn't kill those who mocked him. He died for their sins. And he has called on us who follow him to do the same. To give a glass of cold water to your enemies. To bless them, to to pray for them. This is what rejoicing love looks like. This is is the truth worth dying for. This is the truth worth loving. I was lost, but now I'm found. 
I didn't find myself. The Lord found me. And he has released me from the slavery of my own sin. He's released me from death. Real love rejoices in that truth. It's not a a bland acceptance of a faux tolerance. By God's grace, we can keep joy and truth together. That's why we say ours is a supernatural faith. We are changed from the Holy Spirit from the inside out. It's hard not to be irritated with people. They do get on our nerves. When people mock Jesus and my faith, it's hard for me to want to pray for them. I don't like it. And I'm not really disposed when that happens to want their good. This is why Jesus told the disciples in the very beginning of Acts, when he was ascending to heaven, he told them to wait. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has upon you and you will be my witnesses. Now, that power of the Holy Spirit is for the proclamation of the gospel. But that proclamation, being a witness, is word and deed, both. They are proclaiming what is true, even as they are living out that truth. And it's power that comes outside of them, because in ourselves, we don't have it in us. It is really hard to wish, hope, pray for the good of somebody who's rubbing your nose in it. And that power comes from somewhere else. And that's why you see that word used a lot in Paul's letters. He uses that word repeatedly. And it's interesting to know, this is something in our modern discourse, that often people can talk about acts of goodness and acts of kindness as just being a, a power play in disguise, a way of dominating other people. That I'm here to, even through kindness, to impose myself upon someone else as a grab for power. But when you look at the power that the gospel proclaims, it is not to dominate and to oppress on somebody. It is to come along and to serve, to love, to care for. That's its very nature. Paul tells us in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. In his letter to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 2 Corinthians 4, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Where does this come from? It comes from Christ dwelling in us. So when you ask that question of yourself, are you weak? And, and sometimes people look at this kind of love and go, this is man be, can be weak stuff. Try it. <laughs> you strong person, try loving somebody who doesn't like you. How hard is it? We are weak. And then we look to the power of Christ to continue to transform our heart, to cause us to grow. And that means we we do repent 
when we have not ordained the truth with our conduct and with our attitude. We're, we're there immediately going, Father, forgive me, for I have not loved as you have called me to love. I have rejoiced in their demise. I have secretly sneered, maybe not even secretly, at the harm done to someone I don't like. That's sin. We, we, we call it what it is and we repent of it. And we ask that the Lord would continue to transform us to where we can rejoice and we can celebrate the wonder and the goodness that he has for even our enemies. That's a supernatural work that comes from being connected to Jesus, the vine. We are connected to him so that we can now have glad hearts and a joyfulness that is an outflow of the truth of his love. That we rejoice in the truth. We, we do weep at wrongdoing and unrighteousness. We long for other people to know what will set them free and what will bring them life. And when we struggle with that, we call it for what it is and say, Father, I really am having a hard time loving this person. They're very odious to me. Change my heart. Help me to see them as a person created in your image and your likeness whom your son has died for in order that I can love them with a full, decentered love that has taken me out of the middle of that. That is what biblical love is. That is the hope of glory before us. That Jesus cleanses grubby little hearts. Pray with me. Father, this so often seems so beyond our grasp, so beyond our ability, but Lord... These are not platitudes that you've given to us. These are realities in Jesus. Father, make them real to us. And we ask that you would forgive us, Father, where we have condemned those wearing the wrong colored t-shirt. Father, fill our hearts with joy and gladness for them. Lord, help us to see beyond what's in front of us that we would bring adornment to Jesus. Father, that our lives would be a a setting that would cause his radiance and glory to shine forth to the world. We bless you for the mercy and the grace that we have received in his name. Amen. Please stand together as we sing the goodness of Jesus.